0: Before we jump into today's episode, a brief word from our sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burnt out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenants might be a solution for you. Not sure where to start? LocumStory.com is the place where you can get real unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, What is Locum Tenant? to more complex questions about, pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locum tenants can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or doctorpodcastnetwork slash locumstory and get the answers. All right, welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And today we are joined again by our esteemed general counsel, our colleague, Mike Sakopoulos. Welcome, Mike.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So we continue our series of Ripped from the Headlines. These are medical legal stories that found their way into the newspaper or the medical legal literature, and there are lessons uh, to be learned and potentially unlearned. So let's dive in, shall we? That's it. Pull the trigger. All right. So the title <laughs> the title for this was is the... Um, nondescript patient advised to have surgery then refuses then sues so patient advised to have surgery then refuses then naturally sues let's get into the details this is a man from germany who was at a local bar in south united states he was shot in the back taken by ambulance to the hospital deemed to have non-life-threatening injuries but apparently also had um as per the the description, liver and lung injuries. He was seen by surgeons and pulmonary uh, specialists who ordered CT scans, ultrasounds, and the like. They decided then to treat the patient medically as opposed to surgically. Um, Over time, the patient's status started to decline. The surgeon said surgery was recommended The patient declined and asked to be uh, transferred to a different facility located one hour away. The receiving hospital asked that the patient be intubated for the transfer. Uh, The next day, the patient was transferred but was not intubated. Upon presentation, was diagnosed with a grade 3 laceration to the liver bile peritonitis, that's the leaking of the bile fluid into the abdominal cavity, and a couple of rib fractures. The receiving surgeon ultimately performed nine surgeries, so quite a bit. The patient developed sepsis. He ultimately recovered but described ongoing pain. The patient alleged his initial presentation warranted surgical instead of medical intervention, he also alleged delayed treatment worsened his condition, which led to him requiring additional procedures later on. This was a seven-day uh, trial and a defense verdict. The uh, The surgeons, pre- surgeons at the original institution uh, prevailed. So the first statement I will make is, welcome to America, our European friend. <laughs> I, I don't think... You know, getting shot is something that uh, getting shot at a bar in the back is something that they are used to um, on the other continent.
1: No, that's not um, that's not part of Oktoberfest, is it?
0: (laughs) No, it's not. So here the patient was a participant in his uh, care. He ultimately asked to be transferred and refused local care and was deemed to be uh, stable for transfer. But I think the first issue is managing a patient conservatively. Um, it's not unreasonable to manage a patient conservatively, particularly if the facts dictate that um, you don't necessarily have to be aggressive. You can follow. And, I, and in fact, many patients would certainly be gratified by being given an option to avoid being carved open. I, I know of several fellow cyclists who have had injuries that been told that their hematocrit was uh, lower than expected. They, The radiologists identified some blood around the capsule of the, sp- of the spleen. They identified some blood around the pancreas. So the question is, well, you just, do you go in and do an exploratory laparotomy, or do you wait and watch and hope for the best. And in select cases, the, the option is, you know, to wait and watch is an appropriate one. You can get repeat imaging studies. So it's not entirely a crazy idea to, uh, even for a patient who's been shot in the back to treat the patient conservatively from a medical standpoint. I will state though, that if you are going to avoid aggressive care, with a trauma patient like this, you probably should document your reasoning. Um, and ultimately this patient ended up having sepsis, nine surgeries, bile peritonitis, etc. cetera. So I think it's pretty safe to conclude this patient had a rocky course and everybody will appear to be brilliant with the benefit of hindsight, but as you're a traumatologist or a surgeon, trying to take care of a patient prospectively. Uh, The challenge is, you know, Goldilocks, doing too much or too little. I think, you know, it's easy to make the case. They should have just gone in and done definitive procedure on day one. But it sounds like this was not immediately life-threatening and that different surgeons would have treated this differently. But what are your thoughts in terms of trying to thread that needle related to, too much care, too little care, and reassessing and documenting your line of thinking.
1: You, you're right. Obviously, you want to, to document this as thoroughly as possible. When you're erring on the more conservative side because of the the patient's wishes and, and desires, all of which I think is appropriate. But in this situation, we have a confounding factor that we have someone who is from a from out of of the country and presumably English is not this patient's first language now I don't I, I don't know how great of command over English um the the patient had but it does raise the question of can the patient fully participate in his or her care If they lack the linguistic skills to do so Mm -hmm. and should you have even if the patient's able to have conversational english the kind of decisions that are being made in the sophistication of the discussion may require you to bring in an interpreter uh, to really make sure that everything is being fully understood
0: i'm not sure people understand maybe we should spend a few minutes on this The obligations and requirements for being able to effectively communicate with a patient. Um, So, for example, if the patient came in and was completely deaf, I think most people appreciate in a hospital that they would need to provide, certainly if the patient requested it, somebody who was conversant with American Sign Language and medically proficient. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, let's, can't we just use a family member? To fill in the gaps. You know, they they live with the patient, they understand the patient um, is deaf, and we've been able to communicate about basic household matters. But even then, it may be a challenge. I know that most hospitals do make available translators. So if the patient is deaf, translator, you know, to assist a patient who is hearing impaired, uh, so that the patient can understand and meaningfully participate in their care. If the patient is visually impaired, They would figure out how to um, transfer information to that individual. And likewise, if the patient doesn't have a command of English, um, do you bring in a medical translator, uh, somebody who's proficient in the patient's native language, who pays for that, and how do you find such individuals, particularly when time may be of the essence? These are the broad topics for discussion.
1: Right. So it's it it can be difficult and, and expensive. The inclination is going to be to use a family member, but I'm going to tell you now, that's a bad idea. Um,
0: Repeat that it, so everybody hears it, that.
1: It, it is a, a bad idea. Do not rely upon your patient's family member to be the translator. One, you have no idea if that person has uh, the understanding To do medical types of of translations two it raises all kinds of privacy concerns right will the patient tell his or her daughter certain kinds of facts about themselves that you would need to know to treat but that might be embarrassing to them and they don't want their their child or their their spouse to know Um, that relationship can interfere with the the medicine and you don't know the quality of the translator so there are certainly services out there that provide remote uh translation uh that are high quality and you will not be criticized for using and that's what you should do next comes the issue of cost and i will tell you that our our, uh, federal government takes the position that uh, it it doesn't matter what the cost is it's your patient it's your responsibility and if it costs more to pay the translator than you're getting in uh fees for the services that you're renting uh so be it Um, This comes under the Americans with Disability Act, and you need to to know that. Um, Whatever you think of that uh, position uh, or whatever I think of it doesn't really matter because it's the law, and whether you think it's unfair or I think it's unfair, um, that's somewhat academic. You're forced to provide a high-quality medical uh, interpreter or translator for what you're doing, and you cannot factor in the cost of uh, of that into the uh, patient's care.
0: I've certainly had this conversation with some of our clients. Patient will be hearing impaired, for example, and say, I, this patient is demanding a translator and I'm losing money on this particular patient. I'm not getting reimbursed. What it even cost to keep the lights on with this particular patient, much less um, pay the translator out of pocket And I respond as you do, as you just did, which is the the law is the law. It's Americans with Disability Act. The last thing you want to do is tell a patient, I can't, uh, I'm going to have to make you pay for your own translator or I will not see you. If you do that, you are guaranteeing to become a defendant in an ADA lawsuit. Now, the Americans with Disability Act is a... um, a federal law and virtually every state has its state analog so you can you can be guaranteed you will become a defendant in an ADA lawsuit um, or its state analog and your professional liability uh, carrier will not cover you uh, for that you'll be writing the check out of pocket so when we're talking about whether you can afford it or not you should use that those numbers in terms of your uh, calculation now here's the good news this doesn't come up all that frequently. I mean, it's not as if a practice is being inundated with a particular subset of uh, the population that is relying upon you to to uh, bring in an interpreter uh, for communication. Um, so it's not as if this is going to bankrupt your practice. Um, number two is that the federal government also gives tax incentives to hire patients Or I'm sorry, to hire employees, for example, disabilities. So there are tax credits or tax deductions for providing reasonable accommodations to employees. Um, So there are some benefits associated with the ADA law that ultimately will inure to the practice. So I'm, you know, I do, I am sensitive to the argument that's being made. Hey, look, it's this is costly to provide. An interpreter, but it's it's the law. It's probably the right thing to do above and beyond being the law. You want to make sure your patient has good information so that they can be a willing and helpful participant in their care, and they can give meaningful, informed consent. I mean, think about it for a moment. Informed consent implies that the patient understood the risk, benefits, and options that were presented to them, and if, if they're if they're not being given to the if this is not being delivered in a form that they can comprehend, how can you honestly say they were given meaningful uh, consent? I mean, you might as well be um, delivering it to them, you know, in hieroglyphics. It, it would not be functionally any different. So the take-home point, I think, as it relates to paying for a translator, no – No practice likes paying for it, but it it truly is the cost of doing business. I don't know of any practice that has been beaten up in terms of the cost of delivering translator services, paying for translator services, but I am certainly aware of practices that have been beaten up for failing to provide such an interpreter and getting sued with an ADA or state equivalent lawsuit. Getting that lovely letter from their insurance carrier saying that nope, we're not covering you for this. You're on your own, and then having to write a substantial check. And also, um, and might correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's not just that you can be sued under the ADA or state equivalent, but there are all types of regulatory headaches associated with it too. Um, you, you know, That's
1: right. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a place that you that you want to be and that covers us with patients that have some what the law would consider a a disability whether it's their hearing impaired or that they don't have a command of the uh, uh, of english but there are other reasons why at times uh, certain physicians or facilities don't want to accept a patient and there are other laws that relate to that and i'm i'm thinking about Mtala, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that law.
0: Yeah. So why don't we start with uh, Mtala and what that is? Mtala was considered the patient dumping law. What does that mean? <clears throat> it meant that a patient would show up in a particular emergency room, and the either the hospital or, or what, whatever said, "Look, just we don't. This is a person who's not going to be able to pay their bill." So why don't we send this patient to the next facility down the road that can accommodate such an expensive patient? Um, So even though the facility had the ability to take care of that patient from a financial consideration standpoint, the plan was to ship that patient or dump that patient elsewhere. It became very burdensome to the other facility that was serving the public good So EMTA law, federal law, which basically mandates the following. They said if a patient comes to an emergency facility, there's an obligation to evaluate that patient and stabilize um, or admit that patient um, or discharge that patient. But you can't discharge an unstable patient. You can't transfer an unstable patient. To the extent that you transferred an unstable patient, you would need to support that with evidence that you didn't have the ability to go the extra mile and t- either take care of that patient or stabilize the patient. And in the absence of that type of documentation, the other entity, the receiving entity, can file an Mtala complaint with the federal government saying that the transferring facility Uh, dropped dropped the ball and they need to be fined. So this is is the law that came into effect um, because of the financial machinations of various facilities, not wanting to take care of patients that could never pay their bill and making it someone else's uh, burden. So this was the systemic treatment of that, which basically says you need to stabilize and either admit or transfer to an accepting facility that has, uh, the appropriate resources that you lack to get the job done. Do you want to, you want to add to that, Mike? Right. So in this law
1: covers the, the facility or the, the hospital, typically not the a physician. So the way that hospitals get around that are through their, their requirements, um, of, of their staff and through staff uh, bylaws and so forth to to make sure that that's all uh that they're that they're covered uh for these type of of behaviors so it these cases do come up on occasion and you want to be um you want to be careful but this whole idea of some patients are less desirable than than others um or more difficult to to treat than than others Um, is is an area that you need to be careful of because there are certainly laws out there that say we need to to treat every patient um, equally.
0: Now, the hospital typically will have its call schedule, meaning that it's staffed the emergency room with the appropriate specialties to deliver reasonable emergency care. And as a condition of staff privileges, the hospital will frequently mandate that each individual specialty uh, participate, and some of the hospitals will pay a per diem, and the per diem can be quite lucrative to uh, to many of the practitioners there. So what used to be a complete and total burden um, in some in some venues have become a cash cow for doctors, a highly sought after uh, perk. Providing ER coverage, getting paid, you know, just to provide this call coverage. So the world has changed uh, significantly, but I do as a condition of staff privileges um if you don't show up and you're on the call schedule and or you just say hey look this patient um, can be transferred or can see me in the office if something happens to that patient uh you can and will burn i mean you have a contractual even though you have let's say for example the er calls you up and says i've got this particular patient and um, they say, I'd like you to come in and see this patient. If you say, well, look, just based on what you told me, I feel pretty comfortable. You can discharge him and send them to my office uh, tomorrow, eight o'clock, be happy to see him there. If, for example, the patient develops a bad outcome, meaning the ER doctor acted on your advice and discharged the patient, and it turned out the patient was not stable and uh, should have been evaluated, you you can and will burn. Um, now, interestingly enough, you have not formally initiated a doctor-patient relationship with with this individual, meaning that you're you're on the call schedule. You've not seen this patient. At best, the ER doctor has seen the patient and reasonably relied upon your opinion to come up with a conclusion. This patient can leave, <clears throat> but even without um, a doctor-patient relationship. I think the fact that you have a contractual obligation um, to be on the call, meaning that you're on the call schedule and you have an implied contract with a facility to provide these services, if you make a decision not to show up, it will still be determined, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it'll still be determined that there is a doctor-patient relationship. You chose not to not to see the patient, but ultimately this is your patient because the patient was to be seen by your particular specialty, you you filled that slot um, on the call schedule, you chose not to come in, and the ER doctor acted on the phone call that you made, I I think it would be difficult, if not impossible, to argue, hey, look, we never had a doctor patient relationship because I never saw this patient. What, What do you think the outcome would be? And do you think it would even vary state by state?
1: No, I think I think you're going to lose because in, in your scenario, you're still rendering a medical opinion based off of information. You don't have to physically see the see the patient if you're getting their medical information and, and giving an opinion based on it. Um, you're there. You're <laughs> you've signed on It's your it's your patient. And if you have the responsibility of being on call and doing that and you don't show up there's going to be um, liability there or or show up late. I've had those cases where someone uh, is on call and for whatever uh, reason they get paged and they don't respond and uh, they get paged a second or a third time and um, finally they they get around to to calling back and then they go in and it's now been X hours since they were originally uh, called in. Uh, and the patient has deteriorated because they didn't have that, that uh, necessary care that should have been provided. Uh, we're
0: also on the on the hook for that as well. Before we end, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com/ locumstory to get real unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's IN Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.